disconnected from a previous meeting. Anyway, uh, to get started again with apologies, um, I'm not going to talk directly um, on the military situation in Ukraine. Um, I've just read that civilians are um, coming out of um, um, the steel plant. Um, all I would say is that, uh, as with my article, um, I think that what we're dealing with, at least as things stand at the moment, is a very slow uh, military operation. Now, I don't know whether that was um, expected on the Russian side or expected on the Ukrainian side. Uh, there were certainly in Britain more than a few armchair uh, generals that were talking about, you know, rapid movement and giant tank battles. Uh, of the sort seen in Kursk in 1943. My own, <laughs> as, a, as an armchair general myself, I was always rather skeptical on that. I can't see Ukraine committing large number of tanks when it doesn't enjoy air superiority, uh, when it doesn't enjoy tank superiority, and when both sides, I'm guessing, are pretty much dug in after how many years? Eight years of uh, border warfare. Uh, so my own expectation would be drawn out, uh, bitter stuff. On the other hand, you could see uh, the Ukrainian army in the East encircled, and that would be, as, uh, as I've written, a game changer. Either way, what I thought I would do is really begin with, at least in Britain, which is the... Um, completely untrustworthy end of the press. Uh, and that's the Sun and the Daily Mail. These are very big circulation right-wing uh, papers. And what they've been carrying, which I haven't commented on thus far, is persistent stories of the ill health, uh, and we're talking about physical ill health of uh, Vladimir uh, Putin. And so we're told uh, that uh, after uh, May the 9th, which is Victory Day, uh, he will disappear. Now, either that's going to be with um, he's going off for an operation or he just disappears for a cancer uh, operation. And there's also stories that he's got Parkinson's. So the sort of, you know, uh, there's a video with him holding a table and uh, that's the diagnosis uh, of uh, some journalists now. As I understand it, when it comes to mental question, let alone physical questions, proper doctors uh, will not be diagnosing um, from afar um, on that basis. But why do I want to comment on it? Well, perhaps, perhaps, and this is pure speculation, uh, perhaps um, this provides uh, a useful cover story, uh, both for the West uh, and um, for uh, Russia if they wanted to do a deal. Blame it all on uh, Putin, um, say that he's mad, say that he's ill, um, then who replaces Putin, you know, ain't guilty um, of uh, any, any of this. Either way, what I would expect um, is some sort of, um, 
how should we put it, um, shift of gear um, on May the 9th. Now, May the 9th is uh, the sort of uh, victory day over Nazi uh, Germany. And I've already indicated when it comes to Mariupol, I would expect uh, Putin uh, to declare that a victory. But there's also uh, stories, again, how reliable, <laughs> you know, don't, don't believe anything uh, at the moment from either side, but at least there are stories uh, about uh, Putin saying that, um, well, what's happened is it's no longer a special military operation. Uh, this is no longer about uh, denazifying uh, Ukraine. And I take that to be code word for the actual regime in Kiev. Uh, I don't take it as code word just for the Azov uh, battalion or regiment or whatever it's called uh, at the present time. Either way, um, what is being suggested, which is a truth, and that is actually what's uh, uh, happened is we've gone from a special military operation to a proxy war uh, with NATO. Now that isn't a declaration of war against NATO. Uh, don't expect that. But on the other hand, a declaration of war against a proxy uh, Ukraine um, is something that's conceivable, i.e. what they say is that uh, the Ukrainian army has got lots of mercenaries uh, in it. The SAS uh, seems to have been deployed. We're not talking about vast numbers, uh, but nonetheless, there's also talk uh, by some ex uh, military, and I'm taking that, that they are talking for the uh, existing military or elements of the existing military in the United States of putting boots on the ground in Western Ukraine and therefore relieving uh, the Ukrainian army and allowing it to move to the east. Either way, a declaration of war would also uh, facilitate a general mobilization um, um, in in Russia. Um, so I don't know, but it, it does seem to me uh, that uh, May the 9th could be, could be a, a turning point. On the other hand, and I take this seriously, not in terms of an exact prediction, but as a sort of characterization of the war, we've had our um, foreign secretary speaking in the, the mansion house in the city of London, and uh, what she said is expect this war to be long drawn out. And she actually put a figure on it, uh, which is 10 years. Now, no one can predict 10 years. Nonetheless, as a sort of way to illustrate it, I don't think that that is something I would dismiss. Uh, my own take on things at the beginning was uh, that, um, and I don't apologize uh, for this, my own take at the beginning was, is Putin really going to invade? You know, okay, there's 130,000 troops in the north. What's all that about? And I could well, you know, believe that uh, the Russian army could get to Kiev, surround Kiev, and then bombard it, something along those, along those lines, or for that matter, storm in, uh, capture uh, Zelensky, uh, and declare regime change. I, I could have believed that. Now, what's happened instead? 
is that that failed. Um, and instead, uh, and this is what I then expected, um, that the, the country itself, Ukraine itself, doesn't fall and uh, the so-called West, i.e. the United States and its allies, pile in uh, weapons. They'd already been um, upgrading and training the Ukrainian army uh, since uh, 2014. Um, and what you'd see is a protracted war uh, in Ukraine. So quite frankly, um, although I was surprised by the initial resilience um, of the Ukrainian army, I'm not surprised that it, you know, it hasn't proved to be a pushover. It hasn't proved to be a pushover, uh, quite the opposite. And indeed, uh, what you've got um, is uh, various pundits, various politicians uh, now using the language of victory. And we're talking not uh, in Moscow, we're talking about in Western uh, capitals, and certainly an agitation uh, urging Zelensky um, not to give ground uh, in terms of Russian demands. And therefore what I'm taking that to be is when it comes to the negotiating table, yes, they can talk about prisoner swaps, they can talk about civilians getting out of this or that city, um, but um, Ukraine is being urged not to give an inch, not to give a mile, and that doesn't just include uh, the Donbass, that surely must include also uh, Crimea. Uh, and therefore, what we have uh, is uh, an American move, yes, uh, to degrade the Russian armed forces, but also to deny it uh, a port that gives it quick and relatively easy access, relatively, I hasten, easy access to the warm waters of the Mediterranean, uh, relatively easy because uh, um, any ship has to go through the Dardanelles, that's Turkish controlled. Uh, but nonetheless, in terms of Russia, uh, that gives them access to Aleppo in Syria, uh, which is one of uh, Russia's few overseas uh, military uh, bases. So um, I, I think, yes, we're facing uh, a protracted uh, war. And if that goes badly um, um, in Russia, what the West, i.e. America, uh, Britain, and other such allies are banking on is some sort of move uh, for regime change. Now that can be from above, it can be from below, uh, it can take all manner of different uh, forms. We simply don't know, and I don't think anyone knows, but that's, that's basically what they are after. And we should see that in the context precisely of this um, uh, pivot uh, to Asia, and that's just code word for a pivot uh, to surround and do down China. Um, in other words, uh, the new American uh, century will be built um, on, first of all, the defeat of Russia, more importantly, the defeat of China. Now, I'm not imagining any direct war uh, between the United States and China. That could happen, God help us. Um, I, I think the game plan 
um, um, is really what we've seen with Ukraine, uh, and that is proxy wars. And I think that what you've got is Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, the East, the, uh, the Chinese East, Tibet, uh, and other such uh, potential proxies uh, being readied um, uh, as we speak. And I, again, no one can predict uh, what will happen in Russia, whether you end up with a uh, China having its Austro-Hungarian ally, uh, I, uh, you know, a weaker, a weakened Russia tied uh, to China, or on the other hand, uh, a U.S. neo-colony. No one knows, but of course, America wants a neo-colony. Uh, China uh, would certainly settle uh, for an Austria-Hungary. Um, okay. Um, and I'll come uh, a little bit um, to that sort of obliquely um, in a subsequent set of remarks. Meanwhile, um, just wanted to touch upon the Socialist Workers' Party and their paper in Britain and their slogan, which doesn't strike me as a, um, a seller. This is the sort of uh, subsidiary slogan that they're using. Um, more NATO guns mean a less independent Ukraine. Um, I mean, that is not going to uh, produce you a mass um, anti-war uh, movement on the streets. Most people in Britain will just turn around and laugh at that. There's a truth to it. Uh, of course, Ukraine becomes more dependent um, on um, NATO and the United States, the more arms it supplies, that's certainly true. Uh, but uh, for most people, uh, what they see is a Russian invasion of Ukraine, and they see brave politicians, not least um, Jeremy Corbyn um, and, uh, you know, Truss, um, you know, urging others uh, to do what they're doing, uh, and that is supplying weapons. And the figure I read today, for example, is that the UK has supplied uh, Ukraine with 6,000 um, shoulder-launched um, anti-tank uh, missiles. That's a lot of missiles, and they're still going in. And what we have is a, a ratcheting up, inch by inch, um, of the sophistication and the power of the weapons that are being uh, supplied. So whereas at the beginning uh, it was claimed that all these weapons were defensive, how on earth you separate defensive and offensive weapons in a war is beyond me, but that was the claim. But in terms of what is being supplied and what is being lined up, we're getting into heavier uh, weaponry, we're getting into more deadly weaponry. So what, what we're talking about is tanks, uh, not just uh, uh, old T-72s, but more advanced weaponry. And we're talking about aircraft. Now, whether we get into sophisticated uh, American aircraft, I don't know. But my guess would be, just as a guess, uh, that um, Ukrainian pilots will be being trained uh, as we speak. You know, if the estimate is that this isn't a war that's going to end quickly, that's what you would do. And if it takes them six months or a year, uh, to become fully competent. I don't know what the training schedule is for uh, an F-35. That is what they will be doing now, even though that means uh, siphoning off 
potential pilots uh, for training. That's a guess, by the way, that's not on the basis of any uh, knowledge, but we know uh, that we not only have um, um, Ukrainian soldiers being trained uh, in sabotage by the SAS, we also know that in Britain itself, and I'm presuming in America, um, Ukrainians are being um, trained up on advanced tanks, advanced artillery, and advanced um, missile systems. Um, so, you know, where the training begins, uh, the actual hardware uh, will follow. Either way, uh, as I said, I don't think much of um, uh, socialist workers, what I would view as a social pacifist um, slogan. Um, so they also re report in a slightly more detailed way. I could easily um, look up more details, but I haven't. Um, uh, the annual general meeting of Stop the War Coalition. This is a political organization that mobilized, I don't know how many, um, half a million, a million, a million plus uh, against the Iraq war in London, uh, let alone in other cities and in other countries had similar movements um, um, uh, to stop the war coalition. But this uh, this month, uh, let's, I should say last month now, well, May, May the 1st, saw the annual general meeting of uh, Stop the War Coalition and the Socialist Workers' Party went into it on the basis of uh, going in to support it, but also, quote, unquote, this is their internal bulletin, to shape it. Uh, well, I don't see much shaping uh, going on. Stop the War Coalition's own report of the AGM is um, meaningless. It doesn't tell you anything. Interestingly, um, the report in uh, Socialist Worker uh, has more details. Now, I'm not saying any of this is secret, so uh, it's just what I've read. So 150 people online. Uh, that's much smaller um, than you would expect, um, or maybe not, as the case may be, but 150 people tiny um, so not much of an SWP uh, uh, mobilization it would appear and also when it comes to the politics the politics are unchanged so the main slogan of stop the war coalition um, is the same basically as NATO's which is uh, Russian troops out okay I, I sort of agree with that slogan but I'd put it at the bottom of my list uh, nonetheless, when it comes to the other slogans, what we have is shrug of shoulders for me. No to nuclear war. Well, you're going to call for nuclear war uh, and scrap Trident. OK, fair enough. And then what they say is no NATO escalation. Well, for crumbs sake, um, pretty weak, pretty weak stuff. Uh, that's at least from my um, uh, angle. And that motion was clearly, um, you know, um, passed with the support of the Socialist Workers' Party. So we had, um, out of the 150 who were officially registered, we had uh, that motion um, gaining the support of 119 participants as against nine. And there was another motion, which uh, a Socialist Worker says, well, the problem with that motion is it didn't have anything calling for a Russian withdrawal. And uh, that was defeated uh, by 
100 votes to 24, and I think with 10 uh, abstentions. Um, so, as I said, I don't see much political shaping uh, uh, going on. And certainly if you read the Morning Star and you read uh, the um, various uh, press statements and uh, um, all the rest of it coming out of uh, Stop the World Coalition, you get things along the lines of uh, the UN uh, shouldn't be partisan, uh, the UN should facilitate negotiations. And basically the picture is uh, painted uh, that uh, peace and capitalism are compatible as long as people like Boris Johnson and Liz Truss uh, don't use such bellicose uh, uh, language. Um, instead of, you know, sending uh, tanks and, um, and missiles, uh, what they should be doing is sponsoring uh, peace talks. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, you know, to me, I, I find it quite remarkable uh, that the comrades in the SWP have just republished um, the famous pamphlet Socialism and War, authored by Lenin and Zinoviev, um, and uh, don't see a contradiction uh, between, you know, uh, that uh, position of revolutionary defeatism, of uh, the main enemy is at home, and the social pacifism uh, being preached by Stop the War Coalition. In other words, what we have with the SWP is a centrist organization uh, that is best characterized as not as left centrist, like it talks about revolution, but right, a right centrist um, organization, i.e. Alex Kalinikos is fawning um, almost love letters uh, to social imperialists such as uh, Paul Mason, and Gilbert uh, Achatkar, um, just amazing uh, stuff. Anyway, let's move on. We'll come back um, tangentially uh, to the Ukraine war uh, later. I just wanted to talk meanwhile about the British Virgin um, Islands. Um, I don't know much about British Virgin Islands. I sort of know where they are. Um, and I'd sort of gathered that they were a tax haven, but that's about the limit of my knowledge until yesterday when I started re reading the Financial Times on the sting operation uh, that the American authorities carried out on the Prime Minister of the British Virgin Islands, one Andrew Fahey, and I think the, um, the guy in charge of the ports in the British Virgin Islands, they arrested them uh, for um, money laundering and drugs. And they, they were expecting something like 600 or $700,000 um, in payment uh, for, for services rendered and instead they were arrested. And in reply, I've, I've read that uh, Andrew Fahey uh, shrugged his shoulders and said, well, the British don't pay me, don't pay me uh, very much. So sort of what do you expect? <laughs> well, the funny thing about the British Virgin Islands is that we've all known, right, um, even me, uh, that what we're dealing with here is not only, um, you know, um, a, a tax haven, but a corrupt tax haven. Now, we haven't got the information on the British Virgin Islands as we got, for example, on Panama. Remember with, you know, David Cameron's father and, you know, a 
goddamn long list of people who've uh, you know got companies uh, operating well not operating uh, officed in Panama all of that was leaked but this is what British Virgin Islands is it, it's just a uh, it's the same sort of operation uh, done for exactly the same motives and it's not just all Russian oligarchs it goes all the way down deep into the ruling class both in Britain the United States the Middle East of course Russia uh, former Soviet countries, China uh, should be mentioned in this context as well. What we have, I think, is something like, and this is sort of from my uh, instant research from yesterday, I haven't got it noted down, I think the population of British Virgin Islands is something like 50,000. And I have noted down how many companies it's got registered there. It's got 370,000 uh, companies uh, registered there, and uh, they account for $1.5 trillion worth of um, uh, assets. Now, we need to think about uh, uh, this, not as some weird uh, foreign territory. We need to think about this as what it is. This is a British crown territory, um, and it's one of uh, the outposts of the city of London. That's how we need to think about it. So we need to think about the, the city of London uh, operating uh, at the core of this financial con operation with uh, spokes uh, going out, not just to one um, tax haven called the British Virgin Islands, but a whole host of British uh, tax havens, not least in terms of uh, the immediate area in Britain, the Channel Islands, um, I, um, you know, British laws, but no British taxes, places like the Isle of Man, but also places in the uh, Caribbean. Um, um, and what, what you get is uh, British lawyers and British accountants uh, basically creaming off, um, um, you know, um, percentage here and a percentage there for services done. And of course, what I'm thinking about is Britain's former uh, Attorney General, uh, let me get his name, Geoffrey Cox, how, should, how could I forget? He was the guy, remember, uh, that nearly got done, but didn't get done uh, for conducting um, his um, lawyer work uh, from his House of Commons uh, office. And of course, what his lawyer work was uh, in this case, which is the British Virgin Islands, because what's been going on over the last year or so, I don't know exactly how long it's been going on, but there's been an investigation carried out by the British authorities who have ultimate uh, command, led by one Sir Gary Hickingbottom. And... Um, uh, what happened was, um, is as the Americans arrested uh, the Prime Minister of the British Virgin Islands, they decided to publish his report. And what's interesting about his report is it, it says that the British Virgin Islands are thoroughly and completely corrupt. But interestingly, uh, it didn't point the finger at the very top. So the Americans knew all about it. And I cannot for the life of me believe uh, that the Americans knew all about it but the British didn't know all about it. Uh, Britain and the United States 
along with Canada, New Zealand and Australia, constitute what is called the five eyes. Um, and basically what is that is, is that they share intelligence. So America can spy on Germany, um, but they aren't meant to spy on each other and they're meant to share their intelligence. Well, how much they share, I don't know. But you would have thought at the very least that the Americans might possibly share uh, uh, the information they had on the prime minister of a British territory and the fact that he was due to be arrested uh, for drug smuggling and uh, money laundering. Uh, you would have thought that surely is something that they would share. Either way, what we had is a recommendation from Sir Gary uh, that uh, London imposed direct rule. And that's something that Truss is saying that she's going to do. We have the objections from the deputy, but uh, ultimately, uh, as I said, it's London um, in control. Um, but to me, uh, what this uh, says is, is less about uh, the corruption of uh, uh, Andrew Fahey, more about the systematic corruption of uh, global finance uh, that uh, Britain is number two uh, to the United States, that the whole system is thoroughly and totally corrupt. And of course, what we've had, uh, at least in Britain, uh, is the CZS of the assets of various oligarchs, uh, but the whole of the city of London precisely runs on such corruption, not only in terms of Russian money, uh, but all sorts of other monies, not least Ukrainian uh, 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 money or Saudi uh, money. Anyway, um, enough of that. Okay, moving on, just wanted a very quick comment on local elections coming up in Britain. Um, this also involves assembly elections in Northern Ireland. Very briefly, the Tories seem to be talking up the extent that they're gonna lose. In other words, they lose, and then they go on the TV stations and on the radio and speak to journalists and say, well, we always expected to do badly, but we didn't do as badly as we expected. Um, but maybe they do even worse, because what we've had in Britain is all sorts of sleaze uh, scandals. But more importantly, for most voters, uh, isn't the sleazy scandals and the party gate scandals. Uh, it's the cost of living crisis and uh, gas and electricity bills, petrol bills have skyrocketed. Living standards have stagnated and uh, ordinary people are already, already finding it increasingly difficult to pay their bills. And if the government doesn't act by winter, uh, we're gonna see a very grim uh, picture and people know that and they're acutely aware of that. So one would expect people under those circumstances uh, to vote Labour. Um, and uh, my own assessment has always been from the very beginning uh, is that those on the left, that because of statistics say that Sakir can't possibly win the next general election, or he doesn't want to win the next general election because he's so determined to get the left because we are so important and so vital when it comes to canvassing, are just talking absolute, well, let's be polite, shite. 
Um, no, of course he wants to become prime minister. And I think that what we'll see on May the 5th isn't, a, you know, a Labour landslide or anything like that, but I think we will see a Labour advance. Um, what does that mean to me? Well, um, it's the second 11. Um, what's the difference between Sir Keir and Boris Johnson when it comes, uh, for example, to the Ukraine war? I can't really, in the life of me, in any real serious, I, in any serious sense, say there's any difference. They are both determined uh, to stick with the United States and to be the United States' most aggressive uh, big ally. Um, so what, at least from my angle and from the angle of the PCC, we're simply saying, yeah, OK, if you can find a principled left winger in the Labour Party that's standing, that's possible, you know, depending on how you define principle, um, because there'll be sitting councillors. But if you can find a, a principled person on the left, vote for them, sure, canvas for them. Um, you'll find it very hard to find them, though. And if you can find someone um, who's standing on a left wing platform, um, I would vote for them. I have no illusions in um, Tusk. That's the trade union and socialist coalition. Why no illusions in them? They stand against, quite rightly, uh, against the um, cost of living and, the, you know, the cuts in council spending and uh, all the rest of it. But what are, what are they saying about the war? What are they saying about the war? Nothing, absolutely nothing. Nothing even about the amount of money that is being spent on this war, let alone the danger of, um, you know, a mission drift of um, the SAS, presumably um, already deployed into uh, Ukraine, and the danger of um, US troops being deployed, if it's thought to be necessary, then followed by British troops uh, um, into uh, Western uh, Ukraine. Nothing about that. Um, so to me, it just illustrates the uselessness of such broad projects, such lower, lowest common denominator uh, politics. Um, you know, in the midst of a, a proxy war by NATO, um, on a nuclear armed power to be silent um, on that question surely uh, is a testimony of bankruptcy. So yes, if they were standing locally, um, I would vote for them. Uh, but hey, uh, I retain my <laughs> right uh, to criticize. And that goes for most of the other left-wing candidates that we have available to us. I read about the People's Alliance of the Left, God help us, which unites Tusk with left unity and the breakthrough party. Don't they have a sit? Don't they have a, some rule that's saying that only people um, under 30 can join? God help us. And then we have the Northern Independence Party. God help us again. Um, why be in alliance with people like that? Anyway, Socialist Worker advises it people to vote Labour on the basis that if you give Boris Johnson a good bashing, uh, this will encourage Tory MPs to oust him. Uh, and again, I shrug my shoulders because I've looked at Socialist Worker placards over the years and gone, well, yeah, but. So I remember the Socialist Worker placard saying, Cameron, out, out, out. And my response to them was, well, OK, Cameron, out. 
Who are you going to get? You've got Theresa May. May, May, May. Out, out, out. Well, comrades, who are you going to get? You've got Boris bloody Johnson. Boris, out, out, out. Who are you going to get? The idea that this is a blow delivered by the working class is delusional. So, no, we want a working class movement. We want powerful trade unions. We want a party. We want our alternative. We don't want the Tory party or the Tory MPs choosing who's the next MP. I mean, PM, I should say, excuse me. Anyway, you get my uh, main point. Our emphasis should be on the organisation and the combativity um, of the working class, not which prime minister uh, the Tory party choose because they want to advance their uh, careers. Okay. Having mentioned uh, Northern Ireland, the predictions are uh, that Sinn Féin will emerge as the biggest party in Stormont. And that matters because under the, uh, under the Good Friday Agreement, the biggest party has the, um, how should you put it, what do they call it? It's not the Prime Minister there. Um, anyway, the top job, I just call it the top job, so excuse my um, lapse there. And then the second party um, on the other side of the Secretariat and Divides gets the deputy. So as things would go in terms of opinion polls, it would be Sinn Féin first, DUP second. Well, what we have is the DUP running a constitutional campaign where Sinn Féin is talking about cost of living and prices. The DUP is banging as hard as it can on the constitutional drum of saying that this is just a first step towards a border poll, which is allowed if the Brits agree um, under Good Friday uh, agreement. Either way, the chances are they will refuse to serve. And you can't say really that this is the cause of a crisis because Stormont is a permanent crisis. It, it's more dysfunctional than it's functional. And far from the architects of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, you know, getting their dream come true, which was um, um, a, a convergence in the middle, in the moderate parties. That's how the whole system was uh, worked. The opposite has happened. So what's happened is that the DUP, far from losing votes uh, to the so-called centre, the so-called non-sectarian parties, and I include the left and the Greens and the Alliance Party in that, where they're losing most votes to is the far right, those that reject the Good Friday Agreement in total and uh, basically say that um, we're going to stand up to Rome rule and uh, Catholic takeover and all the rest of it. And that's how politics have actually gone uh, in Northern Ireland. I haven't been to Northern Ireland for a whole number of years now. Nonetheless, as I understand it, uh, what you've got is more of a division than you actually had uh, between the populations uh, now uh, than under um, the pre-Good Friday um, situation. So there are so-called peace walls uh, that are 30 feet tall, uh, that just run down the side of a road that divide. You walk down a road and suddenly you come across this corrugated iron towering up above houses uh, and that divides the population. 
And so you have a situation where the kids, uh, they go to a Catholic school or a Protestant school. Uh, the workforce is less divided now with the decline of heavy industry and the traditional uh, industries. Nonetheless, the left's hope as well has also been disappointed because what they did, they backed the Good Friday Agreement on the basis that trade union politics would grow and that would take people to the left. And that was a, an illusion. Hasn't happened. OK, so we're having an um, online communist forum with uh, Kevin Bean um, on this question. We don't want to preempt it, but that's where the opinion polls point to. A Sinn Féin uh, victory um, on May the 5th. It will take a few days uh, to come through because of uh, computer calculations. And it's got a very um, PR system in Northern Ireland. Anyway, a couple of other points. And I'll be very interested to hear what comrades have to say on this. We've got our um, Paul DeMarty, our expert on um, all things technological and uh, journalism and the media, writing on it this week. So I'm looking forward in a genuine sense. I'm not just saying that as a, a puff to read next week's weekly work, but he's going to be writing on the, the biggest private takeover in the history of the planet, i.e. Elon Musk, 44 billion, billion, I don't billion, billion, but billion dollars uh, to take over Twitter. I mean, the word fortune um, is just, uh, language is uh, inadequate, isn't it? Describing such amounts of uh, money. Okay, so I've been reading Socialist Worker and I'm going, oh, not a good article in Socialist Worker on this question. Because um, what we have is true. Um, Elon Musk didn't begin as, you know, rags to riches. He never began in rags. He was South African and he was born into, uh, well, his father was a businessman and uh, I don't know enough about him, but he apparently ran, not ran, owned a emerald mine in Zambia. And so I'm sure um, Elon came from some money. He wasn't rich, 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 uh, but he had money. Uh, behind him and he went to America and I think he was one of the founders again I don't know enough but uh, Paul DeMarty or other comrades online now will tell me I think he was one of the founders of uh, PayPal either way he's now known of course for Tesla and electric cars and of course um, space uh, the final frontier and taking tourists up but also taking a, a satellites up both commercially um, and he's also known, of course, for wanting, and I wish him the best, uh, to die on Mars. OK, but what is this Twitter stuff all about? What's it all about? I mean, I am genuinely perplexed because on the one side, his supporters say this is about him wanting to get rid of advertising. I don't I'm not a user of Twitter um, and for freedom of speech. And I'm going, well, yeah. OK, but in Britain, what we've got is more regulations being put on such media and the same things happening in the EU with threats of mega fines if you don't do X and Y and if you allow this and you allow that sort of type stuff. So more regulations. I mean, is he going to stand up to the British government? Is he going to stand up to the EU? Is he expecting, you know, Joe Biden to back him in this? 
he hasn't got Democrat uh, politics. You know, he's anti-state. I don't think he's a Trumpite. Um, I would call him some sort of right-wing libertarian. He hates the state. I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of somewhat perplexed. And um, of course, we have a situation um, in America, I'll get my papers right, of where the world's second richest man, um, Amazon, uh, Bezos, took over the uh, Wall Street Journal. Now, what Socialist Worker tells us is the reason he's taking over uh, Twitter is to make money. And it's all about, because we've all heard, you know, in terms of earlier uh, scandals, you know, in terms of elections in America and um, monetizing, um, you know, um, uh, such media. So what we come out, what they come out with is, is going to be uh, data um, fishing, farming. He's going to be looking at stock market movements. Um, I'm somewhat skeptical, I have to say. Why, why spend 44 billion on Twitter um, to do that? I just don't get it. I can see why Bezos uh, buys up a newspaper. Okay, I'm, I'm told uh, that he doesn't directly interfere in the editorial line of that paper, but you don't need to, do you? When you're the owner, uh, the editors, you know, everyone knows. Uh, don't say that, it will upset Jeff, sort of idea. But I, I pose it this way, that my understanding is uh, nowadays, and uh, Paul can put me right, that The Sun, which I think is still Britain's biggest selling paper in terms of physical paper, uh, makes no money now. It used to be a real money maker. Um, but The Times, I don't think, has ever made money. Uh, the Guardian has never made money. Um, the Daily Mail does online, but increasingly what we have, I shouldn't even say that increasingly, what the press has been for a long time, I'll stick to this, is being a influencer, a political influencer. So, you know, the mass media can be used to protect or promote uh, the interest, not firsthand, but secondhand sort of idea, um, you know, the ruling class in general, but particular um, billionaires now, um, specifically. That, that's my take on it. How you use Twitter, though, uh, for that, I do not know. And I'll be very interested uh, because we had a discussion on this on the PCC. I posed the same question and none of the bright sparks on the PCC came up with John or Jack. Hey, pat on the head, look, this is the obvious answer. No one could come up with why the hell is he spending 44 billion um, on, on this project? Not least with um, government regulation um, uh, pending. Okay, so what could happen, what could happen is there's a month grace between them accepting um, his 44 billion offer and when it's finalized. And if he uh, reneges on that, he has to pay a billion dollar uh, penalty. Uh, but as the Financial Times said, well, a billion dollars is a lot for you and me. Uh, but for Elon Musk, who made nine billion dollars uh, in terms of buying up um, uh, Twitter shares, remember when we had the story about him going on the board, he made nine billion <laughs> in that process. OK, the share prices have since dropped. And he's paid a premium, if he pays, 
uh, nonetheless, um, I don't know. And I, I'm going to leave it at, at that. I, I do not know. So I'm waiting for um, comrades on this forum, uh, but also uh, our Paul DeMarty to maybe come up with. He doesn't know either. Uh, all I would say, though, and this is really against Socialist Workers Party, which is the sort of I do know side of my uh, remarks, that we shouldn't reduce everything that capitalists do to profit. There's a stupid habit on the left to look at everything they do and say, well, the explanation is, uh, Jack, it's profit. As if, you know, Elon Musk going to Mars is about profit or putting up, I don't know, what was the last space telescope? That was about profit. Or for that matter, Abramovich buying up Chelsea. It was about profit. Now, I know some football companies make a profit. I know some of them are run as purely business operations. The Glazier, Glaziers and Manchester United could be mentioned. It's a money maker. But if anyone's telling me that Chelsea or Newcastle United you know, with MBS, it's all about making profit. I'm sorry, but you just need your head examined. It's the opposite. This is about luxury spending. And having mentioned the Financial Times, each weekend they produce a supplement which is called How to Spend It. And it basically advertises yachts and watches the, like the boxer had stolen the other week for £70,000. Well, to me, you know, I might be wrong, but when you've got something like $250 billion in assets, well, yeah, assets, which is what Elon Musk has got, maybe he's spending uh, uh, this as a article of consumption um, as opposed to a profit-making thing. And therefore, I'm including uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, the Sun, uh, the Times, The Guardian, as examples um, of something that has use value, uh, that should be seen as use value uh, to its owners, uh, not, not primarily in terms of exchange value. Of course, I know you can sell things through these things. The Guardian carries advertising. You have to pay X amount to buy it. I know, I know, I know. Nonetheless, I would still view it as use value primarily in the same way that um, MBS buying up Newcastle United or Abramovich buying up Chelsea was use value uh, to these people. It enhances their prestige and they enjoy, they enjoy the glory uh, that comes with it, perhaps. But again, I wait to be informed. Now, I promised uh, finally um, to deal with um, Ukraine again, and here we go. So this is my last thing. May the 1st, 1986. This is when the Soviet authorities, Gorbachev, at first admitted there was something wrong in Chernobyl. I vaguely remember it because you had Swedish uh, scientists saying, hey, there seems to be something funny going on in the Soviet Union, in Ukraine. Uh, we seem to be getting radiation. I remember when they banned the consumption of milk uh, from cattle and I think maybe even meat, even lamb uh, from those Welsh hills. I can remember stories along those lines, uh, but it was on May the 1st, 1986, 
when the Soviet authorities said, yes, there's been an explosion. And what we had is the meltdown and I think a week of uh, plume of um, ash uh, being sent up into the atmosphere and basically spreading uh, to the west. The wind was taking it uh, to the west, hence it arrived in Sweden, Germany, Britain, Wales, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, I'll get there eventually, don't worry. I'll get to uh, Ukraine. Um, but there's been a book that's recently been published uh, dealing with uh, nuclear accidents. And of course, there's been three famous uh, nuclear accidents leaving Chernobyl aside. That's been the worst in terms of loss of human life. Uh, but of course, before that, there was Three Mile Island. That's just worthwhile mentioning in the context. I don't know if anyone remembers watching the film with Jane Fonda, and Jack Lemon, um, the China syndrome, remember the one where this uh, nuclear reactor in America, I can't remember where it was located in the film, was going to melt down and uh, it basically ends up in China. <laughs> sort of, I think that was the idea. And what happens at the end is Jack Lemon, who's the sort of uh, the director of this nuclear plant who recognizes it as a problem, is shot down by the American police, or is it the CIA? I can't remember. Either way, what happened after that, once the film was released, a month after that, we had Three Mile Island and uh, the accident in Three Mile Island, plus the film, basically led the United States to abandon um, its civilian uh, nuclear um, industry. Um, and of course, the reason why I'm raising this um, is because um, in response to Russia, um, cutting off gas uh, from Poland and Bulgaria because they wouldn't pay in uh, rubles. Germany apparently is and is under pressure not to. The cancellation of Nord Stream 2 and basically Europe sacrificing itself for America because it's in charge really. America's proxy war in Ukraine. Uh, what we have in Britain is a significant turn to nuclear power, not only existing uh, projects, uh, but I think it's eight more nuclear um, power uh, stations are being planned. And this is obviously in the context uh, of uh, the attempt to become independent um, of Soviet, Soviet, Russian oil and gas. Britain can do it. I think they import about 3% of their total needs where if you take Germany, it's about a third, and Italy is about a third. So if they don't um, it, you know, pay indirectly with rubles, um, what the hell happens to German industry or Italian industry, but crucially German industry, the powerhouse, the economic powerhouse uh, of Europe, I don't know. Uh, but yes, a turn to nuclear, will that happen in Germany? I don't know but it's quite conceivable. All I would argue is that nuclear power, no doubt that when it comes to civilian use is um, less hazardous than it was in terms of the design, you know, compared with Chernobyl or Fukushima. I don't know enough about Three Mile Island to comment on, on that. But there's always the question of the waste and there's always the danger. Remember a few weeks ago, with Russian troops at Chernobyl of uh, not accidental 
um, uh, but deliberate uh, attack uh, on such a site. So imagine a 9-11 on an existing plant. I know that they've now um, protected them, uh, but nonetheless, in terms of military technology, you've got bunker busters. Uh, people who know anything about Iran will know about that. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, um, we also have um, a situation, and this is my understanding, and I haven't looked up enough about it, uh, that Russia, although it's no doubt going to take an economic hit because of sanctions, um, is having no great difficulty in selling its oil um, or gas, uh, for that matter. Not only is there Germany, who is paying for it, um, Via rubles, it's a circuitous route, but you also have China and uh, China buying up, or it's in negotiations, I'm not quite sure, to buy up Shell's uh, stake of the Russian gas and oil industry for four billion. And of course, India, um, which doesn't see why it should sacrifice itself uh, for America's uh, um, bid uh, to um, have, um, well, to. Um, uh, double up uh, its global um, hegemony. And lastly, I just wanted to finish by, of course, marking the fact that it's uh, International Workers' Day, it's May the 1st, and to wish um, all our um, comrades all the way around the world best wishes for May Day. Of course, May Day has a symbolic uh, importance, and what it symbolizes is working class unity. Um, that, uh, you know, we cannot be victorious unless uh, we have unity on a global scale. Uh, that is something uh, that the international working class movement has always recognised. What a shame it is um, that um, at this present time, so much of the left is confused, so much of the left um, has been silenced, allowed itself to be silenced uh, uh, by this proxy war. So much of the left has proved inadequate uh, faced by this uh, NATO proxy war uh, against Russia. And that doesn't mean we should become pro-Russian, pro-Moscow, call it whatever you will, but we recognise the main enemy is at home. That surely is our starting point. And that's a starting point for working class internationalism that's real, as opposed to fake, uh, that says the main enemy is Putin or the Kremlin or Moscow. No, that's not our main enemy. That's it. Thank you, Stone.